Welcome to Power Play. I'm Mike LeCouture. Today, a report of a serious escalation in Russia's war in Ukraine. I'm receiving updates regarding this uh, report and very uh, closely in touch with our Polish allies. The Associated Press reports Russian missiles have struck Poland, killing two people in the NATO member state. If confirmed, this would mark an escalation that could pull NATO members, including Canada, directly into the conflict. We'll bring you the latest in just a moment. Plus, the Canada-China face-to-face. China's President Xi at the G20 summit in Indonesia. Was there any progress to be made as Canada continues to talk tough on China? We'll have the latest from Bali. And a national epidemic. Health Canada officially declares a flu epidemic. After COVID-19 shutdowns, was Canada unprepared for a flu spike? We'll bring in the Canadian Medical Association. This is Power Play. Let's get to the players. I don't want to get ahead of the discussion uh, or speculate, especially since... We have no information at this point in time to corroborate the the press reports uh, regarding uh, allegations of a Russian missile strike on Polish territory. We're looking into these reports, and when we have more to provide, we'll be sure to do so. Pentagon officials say they are aware of the Associated Press reports that Russian missiles crossed over into Poland, killing two people. If these reports are confirmed, it could lead to a serious global consequences. There's a lot to unpack here. We have full coverage for you. We're going to start right here in the studio with CTV parliamentary correspondent Kevin Gallagher. Kevin, thanks for making the time. What can you tell us about these reports from the Associated Press and what we're hearing from Polish officials right now? Well, certainly what we're hearing from Polish officials is a lot of caution. They're looking to investigate this. And they've also uh, upped the readiness of their military, Mike. Now, I think it's important here to point out that these reports that came from the Associated Press attribute unnamed U.S. officials. But on the record, the Pentagon saying that it can confirm what's going on here. They don't know if these are Russian missiles or not. We've also heard from the State Department. So there's certainly a lot of cautious uh, talk, I'd say, coming from top NATO allies like the United States. Uh, Canada's Defense Minister, mm-hmm. Anita Anand, has also said, you know, that there needs to be uh, a look into this, they need to have more information about what's going on. Uh, but certainly it would be a major uh, escalation here if a Russian projectile landed on NATO soil. Yeah, and I believe we do have a clip from the Canadian government. I believe it's from Anita Anand. We'll l- listen to that for a second here now. I am aware of the reports. It would be imprudent for me to comment on them at this point. I am in close touch with our Polish allies, and we are monitoring the situation very closely. So monitoring the situation at this point, Kevin, and obviously as we are talking about international ramifications, not just for Canada, but all of NATO, at this point, Anon not willing to go further. And I guess caution is the key here. Yeah, and it seems that not only Poland, but as well, you know, NATO itself is looking at this. They want to try and investigate to see what's happened. Of course, the Kremlin right now is denying that it, you know, struck NATO soil. But this did happen on a day when Russia, uh, you know, launched more than 100 missiles at different targets within Ukraine. And it comes at a very pivotal point in that particular conflict after Ukraine seized back Kherson, you know, a pretty yeah. important city. So right now it's... Um, 
certainly up to NATO to try and be cautious, because, of course, there is what we all talk about, Article 5, mm -hmm. which is this, if there's an attack on one, there's an attack on all. It's never been, uh, you know, invoked except for 9-11. Uh, so right now there is that concern that this could escalate to that point. But uh, from experts that I've spoken to, there's more of a realization here that likely there will be uh, greater discussions between NATO, NATO allies. There could be an increased uh, military buildup in terms of the supply and support that goes to Ukrainian forces. Anything from Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg just yet? We certainly have seen a tweet coming from Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg. He says he spoke with Polish President Duda uh, and also saying that, you know, the explosion in Poland, and that's certainly what Polish officials and the uh, Secretary General is calling it. I offer my condolences for the loss of life. NATO is monitoring the situation and allies are closely consulting. Important that all the facts are established. So again, a lot of very key words there in terms of the caution. They want to see all the facts come in and no one wants to rush to judgment because that could be a rush into war. For sure. And nobody wants that. Kevin Gallagher from our parliamentary bureau here. Thanks a lot for that, Kevin. Appreciate that. We should stress again, this is still a report. We're waiting for more officials to confirm this. Polish officials have emerged from a meeting, say they are discussing invoking NATO's Article 4. So what is Article 4? Well, in NATO, in the treaty, it addresses what happens when a member feels threatened by another country. That kicks off a consultation process with all 30 members to determine the threat and what can be done to counter it. But Article 4 does not mean that there will be a direct pressure to take action. So does that mean that NATO partners like Canada are going to be huddling now to discuss those implications of today's reported missile attacks? Let's bring in retired Major General Dennis Thompson, a former NATO Task Force Kandahar Commander, thank you so much for taking the time. First off, I just wanted to get your reaction to these reports that we're hearing of Russian missiles crossing over into Poland. Well, I think you have it absolutely right. We need to be careful. First reports are often inaccurate, and this does need to have a, a full investigation, an investigation which should confirm what the point of origin of the missile was or missiles and that's something that uh, military experts can typically do in, in rather rapid fashion. Once you know where the point of origin is, you can assign uh, responsibility, if you will. And, of course, they can examine the remains of the missile on the ground. Uh, that's important before we start pointing fingers and, uh, and invoking Articles 4 or 5. Uh, so I think prudence is the word right now. And that an investigation, a full investigation, which won't take long, is something that needs to be done before anybody, anybody jumps to any uh, rash conclusions. What does it tell you, though, that Polish officials are talking about Article 4 at this stage? Well, it shouldn't come as a surprise to anybody that Article 4 has already been invoked. In fact, it was invoked by the Eastern European states uh, in 2014 when Russia invaded Crimea. And now it's been and it was re-invoked by the Eastern European states in 2022 in order uh, to get the support that the Eastern European states have got and in order to uh, organize the flow of materiel into Ukraine. It involves Canada, and the minister quite rightly pointed out we're, we're quite concerned. We have 700 uh, soldiers assigned to the Enhanced Forward Presence Battle Group in Latvia. We're one of the member states that in, in, uh, invoked Article 4 the last time around. That number is, uh, is growing towards 1,000, and eventually 
based on the NATO summit in late June, will hit about 1,500 Canadian soldiers. We have skin in the game, as the expression goes, and we need to keep a close eye on this uh, conflict. But again, there's no need to rush just yet. And uh, I think the fact that it's Article 4 that people are looking for means that they're probably going to ask for more air defense and other defensive measures to make sure that these errant Russian rockets, because if it is a Russian rocket, it'll no doubt prove to be uh, as a result of incompetence rather than direct targeting. Major General, is that the reason why everybody is being so cautious here, because of the weight that this could carry, that even if it, if it wasn't an errant uh, missile, that this is possibly an Article 5? Is that why everyone is, A, being so careful, but, B, really sort of making sure that we can get to a place that potentially we can have this, I don't want to call it an excuse, but almost an out, uh, because a NATO uh, you know, attack on one and an attack being on all, I mean, that triggers a major response. Right. Yeah, but there's a big difference between a farm, and, and I, I, I'm not uh, playing down the loss of life here. There's a big difference between a farm being taken out and, and some two, two innocent civilians dying and deliberately targeting a Polish or NATO military target. And so that's the nuance that has to be played here. And again, it goes back to the fact that we need to get the investigation done, determine who's responsible and then move move on from there. Uh, I suspect that even if it's the worst case scenario, a deliberate Russian attack on a on a Polish farm, that it'll it won't get beyond this because it's not really in anyone's interest to escalate the war beyond where it is now. But there certainly would be a case to augment the level of air defense and other materiel being provided to Ukraine. Major General Dennis Thompson, thank you so much for speaking with us tonight and providing this expertise. We really appreciate that. Well, it wasn't a long sit-down meeting, but Prime Minister Justin Trudeau did have a face-to-face conversation with Chinese President Xi Jinping. Now, that chat came at the start of the G20's Leaders Summit in Bali, Indonesia. We're told in that short conversation, the two leaders discussed a wide range of topics, including reported alleged interference in Canadian elections. It came as Foreign Affairs Minister Melanie Jolie also met with her Chinese counterpart at the G20. CTV News parliamentary correspondent Annie Bergeron-Oliver is following the Prime Minister and filed this report before the reports, reports broke that some Russian missiles crossed into Poland. Well, Mike, for several days now, the media traveling with the Prime Minister have been asking questions about whether the government had asked for a meeting with Xi Jinping or whether they even wanted one. And we weren't getting any clear answers. The reason we were asking was because meetings with Xi Jinping had already been confirmed for the United States, Australia, France and South Korea. Today, that meeting happened. A senior government source says that the Prime Minister pulled Xi aside and that meeting lasted about 10 minutes. It happened first thing this morning at the very first session of this opening G20 day. The meeting focused on a range of subjects from North Korea to climate change to foreign interference in Canada and, of course, the war in Ukraine. We asked Melanie Jolie what the tone of this conversation was, Mike, and she said it was respectful. She said that's diplomacy. We didn't really get a lot of information, though, about sort of what China said to Canada 
either in the meeting with the Prime Minister or in the meeting with Melanie Jolie. She also met her Chinese counterpart. Jolie said that, of course, human rights came up, but when we asked her for specifics, she didn't offer any. So we're not sure if it was the Uyghurs that were brought up, the situation in Hong Kong, or in Taiwan. Now, the meeting here at the G20 wraps up tomorrow, and it does look like the leaders are expected to sign on to some type of communique. What that language will look like when it comes to Russia and its illegal invasion of Ukraine, that, Mike, is going to be interesting to see. CTV's Annie Bergeron-Oliver in Bali, Indonesia. Today, a tweet from the Prime Minister's official Twitter account was deleted because it contained false information. It came after a viral campaign which erroneously stated 15,000 protesters were sentenced to death in Iran. In the Prime Minister's tweet, he said that Canada denounces the Iranian regime's decision to impose the death penalty on nearly 15,000 protesters, adding... Canada stands united against such heinous, heinous actions. The tweet was removed, but not before it garnered thousands of likes and retweets. Following that, the Prime Minister's office released a statement that reads in part, quote, the post was informed by initial reporting that was incomplete and lacked necessary context. Because of that, it has since been deleted. Coming up, the commissioner testifies at the commission. The inquiry examining the government's use of the Emergencies Act hears from RCMP Commissioner Brenda Lucky. Was she losing confidence that the Ottawa police could end the weeks-long protest? Our Glenn McGregor joins us from the commission right after this. Well, as Canadians are still dealing with the unprecedented impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic, we're now seeing an influenza epidemic in this country. The Public Health Agency of Canada has officially declared a national flu epidemic over the virus remaining above seasonal thresholds. The Health Canada map illustrates the severity of the flu spread in darkened shades of purple. Now, part of the southern Alberta, part of southern Alberta, the entire top half of Saskatchewan, southern and eastern Ontario and New Brunswick are all reporting surges in influenza cases. Joining me now to talk more about the influenza epidemic and what you can do to protect yourself is the president of the Canadian Medical Association, Dr. Alika Lafontaine. Dr. Lafontaine, thank you so much for joining us again. How concerned should Canadians be that flu levels have reached the level right now of an epidemic? So I think it's important for Canadians to realize, even though we've been through a lot of the past few years, declaring an epidemic is, is actually a pretty big deal. So what does that allow us to do? It allows our levels of government to allocate certain resources that they didn't before. Some of this may go into tracking, some may go in, into supporting treatment or, or other areas also unlock certain uh, other powers that they, they might be able to implement to, to, to mitigate this. But the real take-home message is this is very serious. This is not a regular flu season, and it's really overwhelming a lot of the capacity of the healthcare system right now. Yeah, not a regular flu season, especially after historic low rates of influenza for the last year. I mean, that's likely because of social distancing and other measures. But was this something that we should have expected as masking and other COVID-19 precautions were removed? So I think it is expected that as you start to move away from mitigation of respiratory illnesses, obviously you're going to get a bit of a spike. I don't think many people thought it would be as severe as it is right now. 
But I'd go back to what worked in the past. We know that social distancing, you know, staying away from people when you're sick, really, really important. We know that masking worked because it decreased the rate of respiratory illness in our last round. You know, making sure that you don't purposely go out there and get infected if you don't need to, and taking it really seriously if you have a loved one who's at home and seems more sick than you're able to handle, you should head over to emergency and even in the midst of what's going on in hospitals right now. Now, weeks ago, you warned that the healthcare system was on the verge of collapse. When you consider the fatigue that healthcare workers are experiencing after two and a half years of COVID-19, and now that there's RSV and the flu, are we at the breaking point? Are we just past that? You know, I would say it depends on where you're at right now. I, I think there's a lot of weathering that's occurred for healthcare providers. We've been through these crises over and over again. And I'll just say again, the most resilient part of any healthcare system is the people that work in that healthcare system. And we're trained to deal with this type of acuity. We're trained to deal with chaotic situations, but just the unrelenting nature of this and that we haven't actually made some systemic changes that could lead us somewhere different. I, I think it's really wearing on healthcare professionals right now. Uh, doctor, besides getting the flu shot, what should Canadians be doing to protect themselves and the healthcare system at this point? So what do we know works? We know that if you're symptomatic, stay home and stay away from folks. Try not to uh, spread it to, to other neighbours or, or loved ones. Masking does help, you know, making sure that you wear the right type of mask, depending on the uh, type of uh, illness that you're trying to avoid. That may be anything from a simple mask to something that's a little bit more aggressive, like an N95 or N99. Indoor ventilation is extremely important. And once again, just, just keeping track of what's going on with family members. I think there's never been a more important time for us to pay attention to you know, illnesses that we've taken for granted in, in previous years. And it's really important for us to pay attention and help our loved ones and those we care about. Dr. Alika Lafontaine, President of the Canadian Medical Association, thank you so much for taking the time today. Thanks for having me. Now to the inquiry into the federal government's use of the Emergencies Act, where that missing piece of the policing puzzle took center stage. The commissioner, the commissioner heard from the RCMP commissioner, Brenda Lucky. Previously released documents at the commission show Lucky didn't think police had exhausted every tool at their disposal to end the weeks-long occupation of downtown Ottawa. Today, Lucky was asked what she thought about how Ottawa police were handling the protest. Have a listen. I don't recall people saying, you know what, we're losing confidence. It was my observation by the various comments about how come this is still going on? When is this going to end? How come it's getting bigger? So from I was inferring from those comments, when is uh, Ottawa Police Service going to do some enforcement? Uh, when are they going to deal with this situation? Um, I could hear the impatience. I could, I could hear the frustration. And from that, I inferred that they were losing confidence in right. Ottawa Police Service. And joining me now from the commission is CTV National News senior political correspondent Glenn McGregor. Glenn, thanks for being with us. Now, after hearing from the commissioner, it would seem like confusion was rampant within police forces as protesters continue to occupy the downtown court. Was that the theme of her testimony today? Yeah, we heard a lot of testimony from Brenda Lucky about all the meetings she was in with the federal cabinet, with something called the Incident Response Group, uh, and also a meeting of uh, deputy ministers in departments like uh, Public Safety uh, and the Department of Justice who might be involved in this. And yeah, the message she took away was increasing frustration. Like a lot of people who lived in Ottawa, uh, it seems like 
top politicians were losing faith in both the police force and also the police chief, Peter Slowly, who, of course, uh, later resigned. And in fact, uh, Lucky testified that she was asked a few times about whether or not the RCMP could kind of take over the response in Ottawa. And her, her uh, reply to that was that the Ottawa police uh, were the police force of jurisdiction, uh, so that wouldn't really be proper. Uh, but uh, we did hear about uh, how she later in the, in the uh, as the protests continued, the RCMP got involved with the Ontario Provincial Police and Ottawa Police in formulating this plan that would eventually result in that police action we saw on February 18th when police started to move in, uh, first by the Chateau Laurier and then uh, uh, the next day up on uh, Wellington Street. Uh, and she said in the, the night before the emergencies measure was enacted that she didn't think uh, that police had exhausted all the powers and that the suggestion there seems to be, and she was never really asked this question directly, but the suggestion seems to be that maybe the Emergencies Act wasn't really necessary, that police, using the existing laws, could have done their jobs. Yet at the same time, she was talking about how they were kind of sitting around waiting for something to happen. Yeah, uh, for sure. I mean, I think, you know, what we're getting back through this, the, the testimony we've heard from all these other police forces, we've heard from the OPP, um, we, we've heard from uh, multiple uh, Ottawa police officers, uh, is this sort of like this pointillistic, as you say, a power mist of, of information and confusion. Uh, obviously, the Ottawa police was in disarray, uh, possibly. Some will say because of uh, Chief Slowly's leadership, but eventually cost him his job because he uh, resigned right uh, after, uh, right before the Emergencies Act was invoked. Um, but there, there was this kind of lack of communication, it seems. Brenda Lucky was, as the most senior law enforcement officer in the country, she was kind of the go-between in this. She was in every one of those meetings, and yet we haven't really heard from her exactly whether she thought the act should have been uh, invoked. We do know that there was a cabinet meeting where it was, and it was very becoming evident to her that the government was going to invoke the act. So she had kind of like a wish list of things she wanted to put in there. So she was saying like, well, okay, if you're going to do it, what, give us these additional orders uh, it, uh, as part of the uh, invocation of the act that's going to make the, make the policing easier. Appreciate that. Glenn McGregor down at the commission today. Here's some other news that you need to know. Alberta Premier Daniel Smith has fired the province's chief medical officer of health, Dr. Dina Hinshaw. Her replacement is Dr. Mark Yaffe, who will hold on to that position on an interim basis. Yaffe is an inf infectious disease specialist who has worked behind the scenes with Alberta Health Services. Smith had been blunt in her assessment that Hinshaw and Alberta Health Services failed to deliver the best advice during the pandemic. The man who was in charge of Hockey Canada from 1998 to 2014 testified before the Standing Committee investigating the sexual assault scandal at the organization. Bob Nicholson was asked if he was in charge of the three funds that saw player registration fees used up to help pay out settlements in sexual misconduct cases. Have a listen to this. I was the CEO, but uh, that area was really left to our insurance people. We had uh, very good staff. We also had a committee that oversaw uh, the insurance programs, uh, as well as some expertise. Uh, you've had Barry Lorenzetti uh, here before. He, he was a big part of that. And all of that came to me, but I was not day-to-day -day hands-on to that. 
Nicholson also told the committee that he first learned about the sexual allegations leveled against the 2003 World Junior Team this past summer. Home sales in Canada are up for the first time since February. According to the Canadian Real Estate Association, October sales were up 1.3% from September. But if you compare that to a year ago, home sales last month were still down 36%. That number of new listed properties edged up 2.2% month over month. Now, as for the prices, the national average home price was over $644,000 in October. That's down 9.9% from a year ago. Still to come, with inflation and a looming recession top of mind, the Auditor General's latest reports raise the alarm about the federal government's work to address chronic homelessness. How urgent is this for Canadians on the brink? We talk to the Auditor General next on PowerPlay. Frustration from Canada's parliamentary watchdog. Auditor General Karen Hogan released four new reports today which highlighted the government's shortcomings on a range of subjects, including cybersecurity and Arctic sovereignty. Uh, security, rather. When it comes to emergency preparedness in First Nations communities, well, Indigenous Services Canada is not providing First Nations communities support to prevent and respond to emergencies such as wildfires and floods. There's also a backlog of 112 infrastructure projects that would help mitigate the impact of those emergencies. On the AG's report concerning Arctic surveillance, the government doesn't have a full picture of Arctic traffic. This is partly due to an aging fleet of surveillance gaps, which hampers Canada's capabilities to respond to Arctic threats. But the most alarming report concerns chronic homelessness. The AG found there was a minimal federal accountability to reach the government's 2028 target to reduce chronic homelessness by 50%. Infrastructure Canada did not know if their homelessness measures were helping. And the Canada Mortgage, Mortgage and Housing Corporation didn't know who was actually benefiting from its initiatives to help vulnerable groups. So as inflation is already pushing Canadians into a cost-of-living crisis, what can be done to prevent Canada's affordability housing crisis from becoming a catastrophe? Let's bring in Canada's Auditor General herself, Karen Hogan. Ms. Hogan, thanks for joining us. Now, I wanted to ask you, you said that the government can't meet its chronic homelessness reduction target by 2028. What is the main barrier of that? Is it a lack of data or government's lack of coordination? Hi, we found that um, it is unlikely that the government will meet its target of reducing chronic homelessness by 50% by 2028. Um, and I, I would highlight a few things. There is a big data gap in order to demonstrate whether the measures in place are actually having an impact on those experiencing homelessness. Uh, but really it's that lack of accountability towards meeting that target. Um, and in which caused also a lack of coordination amongst the programs under the national housing strategy. And so need, fixing all of those will hopefully put the government back on the right track towards meeting its target. But without that mechanism, can we say whether or not the affordable housing program is a success or a failure? Well, obviously, you need good data in order to be able to determine whether or not uh, you're reaching your intended outcomes. 
Um, and what we looked at is we looked at six programs that Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation uses uh, under funds under the National Housing Strategy. And we found that they could tell us about outputs, so the number of units built but not whether uh, those units uh, were actually being occupied by the vulnerable groups that are targeted. And so measuring those outcomes and being able to know whether chronic homelessness is increasing or decreasing were the big data gaps here. And when it comes to emergency preparedness in First Nations communities, you found that the government is failing to help these communities prevent and respond to natural emergencies. Why do you say that? Well, we looked at a, um, Indigenous Services Canada and the money they just spent over the last uh, four years. And we found that they spent three and a half times more money on responding and recovering to emergencies than on mitigating or preparing for those emergencies. And we made a recommendation that they should really be much more proactive um, in, in order to reduce the impacts not only financially, but the impacts on communities and the people living in those First Nations communities. Now, when it comes to all of these issues that you brought up in these reports, does the government have a data problem or a problem acting on the data that they already have? That's a great question. I actually would say yes to both of those. Um, we've often talked about uh, the need for better quality data in order to inform sound decision making. And again, these are some examples where having that data would allow you to decide whether or not programs needed to be adjusted or if they were on track. Uh, so it, it is about not only getting the data, but then once you have the data, it's about using it and analyzing it to determine whether adjustments are needed. Uh, so data has been a longstanding issue, but one that the government really does need to, to tackle. And what would you say they need to do first in terms of tackling it? Uh, when it comes to data, I think it starts with the outset and the design of a program. Uh, when, when you keep in mind the outcome that you hope to achieve and not just the outputs that you want to measure, um, you, you set yourself up uh, for good project management and gathering the data that you need to demonstrate, demonstrate those outcomes. So it comes back to some foundational um, project management issues, but also understanding the need for quality data to make well-informed decisions. Auditor General Karen Hogan, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate this. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Now let's bring in the government to react to the Auditor General's findings. What do they have to say about Canada's efforts to reduce chronic homelessness? Let's find out. Joining me now is Housing Minister Ahmed Hussein. Welcome, Minister. Thank you for doing this. The Auditor General found that there was little federal accountability on meeting your government's 2028 target to reduce chronic homelessness by 50%. So are you or are you not on target to meet that goal? Well, what I can tell you is that, uh, uh, first of all, uh, our uh, policy, the Reaching Home program, is making a difference. Uh, that's why we're investing over half a billion dollars through Budget 2022. Over the life of the program, we've almost doubled the, uh, the amount of funding for this program uh, to nearly $4 billion, up from uh, just over $2 billion. We're also complementing that with the, the Rapid Housing Initiative that has built uh, over 10,250 deeply affordable homes for the most vulnerable, including those experiencing homelessness. The third round will deliver another 4,500. We'll continue to work to eliminate chronic homelessness from Canada. But how do you know if you're reaching your goal, as you said you did, if there is no accountability and there's no way to measure it? We have been working very closely. There are 64 community entities 
and they serve thousands of uh, frontline organizations serving uh, people who are experiencing homelessness. We have some data. They have reported to us some of the impacts that they've had. Unfortunately, the program was launched in 2019, soon after the COVID-19 pandemic hit uh, these communities. And as you can appreciate, they had difficulties with respect to collection, analysis, and reporting of data. Their challenge was based on the fact that they had to deal with a number of acute problems that faced them that were connected to through the pandemic and how it impacted those experiencing homelessness. So their focus was getting people through that storm and we helped them to do that. Now the focus has to come back to better reporting, better analysis of the data and better collection. And that is why we accept all the recommendations of the Auditor General and we thank them for their work. And uh, we believe that yes, uh, we agree with the Auditor General that the data has to be collected better, but we, ha we are having the impact. And I can give you some examples. Through, the, through some reporting that we've received, we know that through the pandemic, we helped 64,000 Canadians uh, who were at risk of experiencing homelessness to be saved from entering the pipeline into homelessness. And another 32,000 who, who exited homelessness and actually found a housing solution. So the program is working, but we need to do better in terms of setting up mechanisms to better collect data and analyze it and report it back to the federal government. So, so, but that's exactly my question here. If you don't really have the data to sort of support what we know we're getting, then why should Canadians trust your housing efforts in that plan? We do have some data, but I, as I said, we recently launched the results reporting online system to better get granular data on the ground. We know that, that our programs are working. For example... But, but then, Minister, with all due respect, how do you know that they're working if you're not getting the data? I, I was about to, 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 to give you an example. In, in the city of London, we worked very closely with the mayor to, to, to bring down uh, chronic homelessness to functional zero among the veteran population of, of London. And that was done through uh, use of data and through the analysis of the data that, uh, that, that they were collecting together uh, through Reaching Home, which is the federal uh, uh, anti-homelessness program. But more work needs to be done. And we are going to implement the recommendations of the Auditor General to make sure that data is being collected better and analyzed better and reported back to the, uh, to the federal government. That's why we, we launched the results reporting online system to enable... Minister, these, I just have 45 seconds left. I, I, I hate to interrupt, but I've just got 45 seconds left. Yeah. The Auditor General found that CMHC had different measures for what's considerable, considered affordable housing, resulting in many low-income Canadians still actually not being able to afford that so-called low-income housing. So how is this happening, and what are you going to do about it? We use the threshold of 30% uh, of... Uh, we use the threshold to measure affordable housing being that uh, no one should have to spend more than 30% of their household income on paying rent or paying uh, for, for their housing needs. That's the standard that we use in all our uh, programming, and that is the, the standard that's quite frankly used throughout, throughout the country. But of course, we're going to look more closely at the report to see how we can improve on, on that measure of affordability as well through programs like the Canada Housing Benefit. Housing Minister Ahmed Hussein, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate this. Thank you for having me. Still to come, preparing to relaunch. Former U.S. President Donald Trump is teasing a big primetime announcement, which many expect is a 2024 presidential run. 
get the latest from our Joy Malbin in Florida. Stay with us, Power Play. We'll be right back. Are we getting ready for a presidential comeback? Donald Trump is set to make a big announcement later tonight, and pundits are anticipating it will be a third presidential run. Does the 45th president of the United States have the same political heft he once held back in 2016? We're fresh off the midterms that failed to deliver the red wave he was looking for, especially with his hand-picked candidates. So will the Republican Party come together around President Trump, or is the party looking ahead to a new future and a new leader? Let's find out. Joining me now from Florida is CTV News Washington Bureau Chief Joy Malvin. Joy, thank you so much for being with us. So Trump has been teasing this announcement for more than a week. Has the calculation changed, though, since we first started hearing about a possible 2024 presidential run because of what we're seeing in the midterms? Nope. Buckle up, Mike. It's going to happen. If you believe a senior strategist with Donald Trump, uh, he will announce that presidential run tonight. In fact, uh, Trump supporters have been rallying all day. They've been walking across the bridge to show their support in trucks carrying flags and saying, look, this guy did it in 2016. We support him. We're loyal to him. But you mentioned, you know, things have changed here. Of course they have. We've seen Republicans, elected Republicans, outright saying that Donald Trump is yesterday's man, that he is an albatross around their neck, uh, given the very dismal and poor performance of, of many of the Trump-backed candidates in the midterm elections. I was going to ask you, though, I mean, he's not going to face a cakewalk here. There could be another Florida Rep Republican who could be challenging Donald Trump. What are you hearing about Ron DeSantis? Uh, well, OK, for the past couple of weeks, I would say... Hello, Donald Trump supporters there. Uh, for the past couple of weeks, uh, Donald Trump has been... <laughs> For the past couple of weeks, Donald Trump has been trolling Ron DeSantis. He hasn't even said he's going to run. But today, it took a different turn. Ron DeSantis was, was uh, holding a press conference, and he said, look, I've shown I can put together a coalition, Hispanics, suburban voters, uh, business people, and to win and win big in Florida. He says, I've got a blueprint for Republican success. Um, and he took a shot at Donald Trump, saying, look, look at the scoreboard here. Now, he hasn't thrown his hat into the ring. Uh, but certainly you can expect from many Republicans uh, a bit of a bloodbath, a battle royale, as they describe it, if these two go head to head. And certainly some of the polls are playing out. There's been some polling done in Iowa, Wisconsin. These are key battleground states where presidential elections are won or lost. And guess who uh, guess who trumps Trump? Ron DeSantis. Interesting. Joy Malvin with uh, clearly a Trump supporter behind the camera there, not obviously our camera operator, but somebody off camera. Thank you so much, Joy. We'll be watching later on tonight. Coming up, Prime Minister Trudeau has a quick face to face with Chinese President Xi Jinping at the G20. What should we expect from Canada-China relations going forward now? How might a possible escalation of Russia's war in Europe change the nature of the G20 summit? Former Canadian ambassador to China, Guy Saint-Jacques, joins our press gallery next on Power Play.
A world on edge as global leaders meet in Bali at the G20 summit. A potential crisis is now emerging in Poland. Pentagon officials say they're aware of media reports that Russian missiles crossed over into Poland, killing two people. These reports have yet to be confirmed. But if they are confirmed, how should global leaders respond? How will that have an impact on the G20 leaders summit? Let's bring in our press gallery to weigh in. We've got the Globe and Mail's Ottawa bureau chief, Rob, Bob Fife. We've got Le Devoir's Emily Nicolas. And our special guest is Guy Saint-Jacques, Canada's former ambassador to China. Thank you for being here. Ambassador Saint-Jacques, we're going to start with you. What was your reaction to the media reports of those alleged Russian missiles crossing over into Poland? Well, it's very worrisome because it could have uh, uh, very grave uh, consequences for uh, peace in, <clears throat> in Europe and uh, I think that uh, what is required at this stage is a full investiga- investigation to confirm where uh, the missiles came uh, from. And then uh, I would say the, there should be high-level consultations uh, with Russia. Uh, and uh, uh, I think what uh, should be expected as a minimum is an apology for, uh, from Russia. Otherwise, uh, this could escalate and we would have to see whether Poland would want to uh, take advantage of its uh, membership in NATO uh, to uh, uh, request uh, the, the, the alliance support uh, to, uh, for its defense. Now, Bob, the ambassador there just said everybody is basically having to look into this. At this point, though, sounds like everybody is being extremely careful because we know that they're looking at Article 4 now, which is basically discussing this. Article 5 is a huge step. What are the implications here? Uh, and why is everybody being so measured in your mind? Well, I mean, nobody wants to have a, a, second, a third world war with, with Russia. And President Biden has been very responsible in providing um, weapons to uh, Ukraine to help them take on the Russians, but not the kind of weapons that can hit Russia proper. Mm-hmm. And he's also been very deliberate in saying we do not want this to escalate out of control. And I think what you're going to see, the American reaction so far has been let's dial everything down. Let's figure out what's gone on here. It looks like, and let's hope that's the case. It was a, it was a mistake, and because I do think that uh, uh, President Putin is not in a good situation to mm-hmm. be able to try to take on NATO. I mean, he's losing to the Ukrainians. Can you imagine if he got into some kind of a war with um, or a, a, a consultation with the with NATO countries right. who have better uh, weapons and well, it appears now better weapons than um, than the Russians. So I'm just hoping that this thing doesn't doesn't get out of control. Right. And, I, and I have a lot of faith in the in NATO and the uh, President Biden in trying to deal with Putin on this. And Emily, that everyone kind of takes a beat, as Bob was saying there. But this is all happening as at this hour, G20 leaders are likely waking up to this news. Uh, will this be a test for global leaders who are, are at this economic uh, summit uh, and a test for them to come to some sort of diplomatic solution? There is a big, uh, indeed, a big overlap between uh, G20 membership and NATO membership. Obviously, not all NATO members are at the G20, but it does allow some uh, discussions uh, face-to-face, maybe a little bit informally, uh, between some of the the key players in in trying to figure out the response. However, I do agree with what everyone says. That it seems that at least from the NATO camp, not, uh, nobody wants this this conflict to escalate. It'd be easier to ask, you know, Russia to just recognize 
or just say that this is a mistake and apologize if Russia was actually acknowledging <laughs> that the, the strike was theirs. Uh, and so, which is absolutely not the case at this point. Um, so I think the, that's probably why it looks like the first step is to actually investigate what, what it is actually is, uh, because unless, um, you can actually make a formal claim that this is Russia's and we know why, um, Russia will just keep on denying that this was their missile. Um, so I guess in the next days, it seems to be what the focus will be, will be about. Ambassador Saint-Jacques, I wanted to ask you about things that are happening at the G20 summit. You had Prime Minister Trudeau and President Xi unofficially meet at the G20 summit. I mean, it wasn't a sit-down like we saw with President Biden. But what does it say that China did not carve out time to hold an, an official bilateral meeting with Prime Minister Trudeau? Well, I would say that uh, President Xi Jinping didn't want to reward Prime Minister Trudeau, especially if you, you look at recent developments in the relationship, you know, starting with the speech that Minister Freeland made in Washington about a month ago, where she said that we, we have to stop uh, relying so much on authoritarian regime and do a lot more of a friend-shoring. Uh, then it was followed by ministers, uh, Minister Xiaoping's decision to ask uh, three uh, Chinese companies to uh, uh, divest from their investment in Canadian uh, mining companies. Then Minister Jolie uh, gave uh, uh, an overview of what to expect in the upcoming Indo-Pacific strategy uh, and, and uh, with a much more restricted engagement with China. So all this put together uh, means that uh, Xi Jinping didn't want to, to talk uh, with uh, the Prime Minister, but uh, good for the Prime Minister to do. He cornered uh, uh, Xi Jinping in one of the uh, corridor, and th there are always opportunities like this. Uh, I would say that on the issue of interference in Canadian elections, of course, work has been has to be done domestically to better protect uh, our systems. It, it's one thing to ask China not to interfere, but we know that uh, they don't care much. Uh, you know, we had uh, asked them in, in the past to stop spying, and they keep uh, spying. So. Uh, we have to do a, a much better job uh, right here in Canada. Mel Emily, I wanted to ask you, is this, do you think in your mind, uh, Prime Minister Trudeau trying to make the best of the situation and trying to get some face time with President Xi? It looks like uh, this is this is what, what this is about. Um, how, obviously, with the question that was just raised of the election, uh, it seemed very present that, that at least there was some sort of interaction to be able to address that specific issue face to face. Uh, given that we, we just learned that information not just not, not too long ago and that this is a really pressing matter of national, national, uh, national security. So yes, it seems like this is, this is what happened. Uh, and at the same time, um, there are a lot of files on which, you know, regardless of what China is doing, um, the clock is running, uh, and it seems like we have to have conversations with China on, 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 for example, on climate change, uh, one of the big files like this that w just won't wait and it won't wait for the geopolitical situation to change. And so having at least, you know, some informal conversation on, on some files in which cooperation is, if not wanted, at least necessary is important as well. So that kind of meeting can, can still be served that purpose as well. Emily Nicola, Bob Fife, Guy Saint-Jacques, thank you all so much for this today. We appreciate it. That is your Power Play Day in politics. Thanks for spending your time with us. We'll be right back here tomorrow. Until then, have a great night, everyone.